All right. I think we're, yeah, we're recording. All right, cool. What's up, everybody? Um, Chris Dickerson's with me today. He's been on the, uh, he's been on the podcast more than once. Has a great story, so we won't get into the backstory, Chris. Um, but, you know, as I told you, I'm, we're really trying to use this series, this Zoom series, as a mechanism for taking you know, stories and advice that I've been hearing from the podcast from people that I have a lot of respect for and that I think are really have their finger on the pulse of what's happening right now. And you're, you're absolutely one of those, uh, without question. Every time I talk to you, I learn a lot and I'm inspired and um, just we, we think a lot alike in many ways. So, man, thanks for doing this. Thanks for taking the time. Uh, um, mutual. Yeah, man. So Chris is in Augusta, and Augusta, Georgia. And, Savannah. Savannah. I mean, it's Augusta. What am I thinking? Augusta. It's where my in-laws live. No, and Savannah is a much prettier place. Uh, no offense to those of you in Augusta, but uh, I think y'all would agree. So Savannah, Georgia, you got uh, Squirrels Pizza. Um, you started down there in Jacksonville with Corner Taco. Um, and, uh, Burrito Royale, uh, there in Savannah. Um, you've been there a few years. You've made some significant um, progress there. You've been very successful in that area. And more importantly, I think is, um, you know, as we've talked, you really are, are out ahead of what's happening in the industry right now. I think you already were, but, you know, this COVID has kind of accelerated things. But, man, what's um, – tell me a little bit just about kind of where you see the landscape of the hospitality industry right now and what changes you've been making to your business and what changes you're starting to see other folks make that you think are important. Well, definitely greater proportion of overall sales are and will continue to be takeout and delivery, uh, in my opinion. And something that's fascinating to me, like I don't believe in when, when someone says like, Oh, the stock market is so high right now or, or restaurants are all down. I, I don't believe that. And the reason why there's the whole like efficient market theory that all, all like now with rapid disinformation, dissemination of information that all things are, are known by all at all times. That's exactly why there's so much opportunity. It's because people don't look, but the, the, if, if you look at something that fascinates me and I believe you and I have talked about this, you drive by any place with a drive through now, Chick-fil-A Popeye's and there are lines wrapped around the block. Uh, all throughout the entire day, not just at lunchtime, not just at breakfast. Sure. So the, so people are still spending money. They're just, they're allocating it differently. And I definitely think people just, yeah, I think economics is simple. In a nutshell, if people are optimistic about the future, they spend. If they're pessimistic, they contract. And because people now don't know what the future holds, they they certainly have been tighter with the dollar, so to speak. There are places in Savannah that used to be slow that are now busy. Uh, there's a, I won't mention the name, but there's a place, there, there are two seafood places about a block from each other, downtown Savannah. One used to be packed. It's now dead. The other one used to be slow. It's now packed. The slower one is the one that offers more inexpensive food. It's, 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 I don't know how else to say it, but the, we definitely see at both restaurants, we see only about 50, well, Squirrels is a little over 50% dine-in. We're still voluntarily at about 50% dining capacity. Uh, we could be at hundred percent and Florida, we have in Jacksonville, we have to be at 50%, which, and we, we are at 50%, but we see 50% capacity, but we see it's more like 40% of total sales 
roughly our dine-in in Florida. It's more, it's over 50 uh, in, in Savannah. But we, the point is huge amount of takeout delivery. We luckily, fortunately had already had a, a pretty robust uh, online ordering capability wherein someone could store their credit card. Uh, so what happens is they get in the ecosystem and they continue to order over, over and over, over again because it's easy. They don't have to, if they, you know, so, and I think what that really does is that's an interesting proxy for the fact that if in the past people had, let's just say 10 restaurants in their, in their quiver, so their, their favorite spots, let's say if there were 10, I think it's now probably less than five, maybe even three. And so they tend to go to the same places. They go out probably less, but they only go to their favorite spots. They don't just try something new. They, so, but I definitely think we're going to see more and more takeout and, and what restaurants really have to do is they have to adapt their food so that it travels well. Uh, for example, at Squirrels, we add about a little over 2% olive oil to our pizza, not just for taste, but for, it, it helps to keep it moist longer. So it, it did you, holds. Did you change that? Well, we tweaked it. No, no we, we anticipated, we, we always wanted to be, I, What's, you and I have talked about this, but the mo one of the most fascinating things about COVID, in my opinion, is that the things that are happening now, particularly in restaurant business, are things that were already in motion. COVID's just accelerated it. For example, yeah. there's, been, there's, there's fine dining had its denouement, started its denouement, say, 10 years ago. And it's, it's people, when I, I used to work at the Cloister on Sea Island, when I was there in the late 90s, men had to wear tuxedos in the main dining room on Wednesday night. Like, could you imagine doing that now? Like, especially at the beach, it's just, people don't live that way anymore. But fine dining is, I'm not gonna say it's dead, but it's, it's there's only, in my opinion, there'll always be places like Le Bernadette in New York, but the also rans, the places trying, pretending to be fine dining because they have a white tablecloth and because the, the staff wear uniforms, those places are gonna wither and die. And, and the, the the world's becoming more casual it's becoming it, it, instant gratification is more important now than ever they want something quick they want a good uh a fine dining meal might last an hour and a half now whereas maybe in the past it lasted three hours tasting menus i think now people feel like they're being held captive if they if they sit down and have a three-hour tasting menu unless it's at the very you top think that like but there's always going to be a place for that though, right? Like there's always, there's like, times where like, okay, so I'm so casual now. I, literally last week, I get a shower one night. Man, I'm wearing a t-shirt and a hat. That's what I wear every day. I put on like a collared shirt and my, my daughter goes, are you going somewhere? I was like, no, I just want to feel like, you know, like I'm making an effort at some point, you know, like in other words, I wouldn't imagine wearing a tuxedo, although the more everything moves, like you've got this barbell, right? Where everything's moving so casual and fast. Is there opportunity on the flip side of that? If you're really good at the fine dining and you execute really well, that there's less, you know, it, it's supply and demand, right? So there will be absolutely less, but if you're really good at it, do you almost have an advantage right now that when people are looking for it? Oh, I used to have 10 places I could go for fine dining. Now I've got two um, if you're able to, to last, are you almost able to double down on that? If, yeah, or, no, I think you're exactly right. Like places, are you familiar with Liberta Den in New York? Well, no, you meant, I mean, no, I'm not, but I'm not. Uber fine dining air prepare, one of those famous chefs in the world. There will always be room for places like that at the very top. However, the second tier fine dining, 
Yeah. It, it, it's a, to me, it's, it's actually annoying when you go to a place. For example, I went to a restaurant, it was a few years yeah. ago in Washington, and it was a nice steakhouse. And I asked the server about a particular wine, and I said, is it, does it have go, go through malolactic fermentation? Is it, is it more like, um, is it more buttery, a more but, buttery oaky Chardonnay, or is it, does it see no malolactic fermentation, so is it not buttery? And the person didn't know, and ro- which really doesn't bother me, I just would expect that they would ask somebody. But rather than saying, I don't know, let me find out, it's a good question, I should know, they just totally bullshitted me. I don't know how to say it. They just said, they went straight down the middle, it's oaky, but not too oaky. That's annoying. Like it would have been easier for me to have just spun the wheel and ordered myself. And, and I think- You gotta execute, you gotta really execute. You gotta execute, and if you execute well, there'll always be space. But, the, but, but I can tell you that they're all over the country, there have been a lot of second and third tier, you know, quasi fine dinings that have, that have been able to, to make it through just through just going through the motions. And I don't think they're going to last and, and places that don't adapt. It's amazing to me how few restaurants and COVID really kind of smoked this out, how few restaurants or how many restaurants there still are that don't have a website. They don't update their Instagram. They don't claim their Yelp page. Like that is, that's not going to fly in the future. And the, you see a lot of restaurants that are still in that boat. I, it, yeah, a surprising number. You go on someone's Instagram, like for what, something we've, one, something that you and I have talked about this, but something that is more important now than ever, a business has to be easy to do business with. Mm-hmm. There's a, there, I can think of a, there's a, I won't even name the town because it'd be easy to figure out, but there's a, a place where I used to buy bread that I loved. It's a city in which I used to live before. And killer bread, some of the best I've ever had but they kept tweaking their hours. It was hard to find out when they were really open. At one point they were open, they were closed on Mondays. Then they opened on Tuesdays, but you could only get frozen bread on Tuesdays and only after two and only until five. And then they would take two, three week vacations a year, which means that people had got, even though they'd gotten used to that good bread, they'd have to find another source for that, those, those chunks of time twice a year. They were hard to do business with. I stopped going because there were so many times that I went and they had, oh, we're sold out today. And, not that that's a bad thing, but sometimes it'd be sold out at like 11 a.m. or you know 10 a.m. and it just you've got to be easy to do business with. So for, for example, we on our Instagram clearly state our hours, especially now with COVID. No one really knows if a place is reopened or not. People haven't changed their altered their hours since before COVID. You have to be easy to do business with. People are going to study your hours, and that's one of the reasons why both restaurants are open seven days. We used to only be open six in in a corner taco. But what we found is people would come on Monday, we were closed, they would get annoyed, they'd never come back. So being open on Monday, even though at one point it was slow, it's not now, really was an investment in doing more business than the other days. You have to be easy to do business with. And a place that, that does that well and kind of turned the model on its head is Starbucks. And that Starbucks, I don't know if you know this, but they apparently pay extra rent in order to have the proximity clauses stricken out of the lease, you know how those work. Like commercial leases, generally it says you can't have the landlord ask you to sign something saying you won't open a competing business within, let's say, two miles. And the idea is that that could jeopardize the landlord's ability to receive rent if the business goes down at one uh, at the current location. Whereas Starbucks, they cluster restaurants. Where I lived in Washington, D.C., there were sometimes three Starbucks within two blocks of each other. Yeah. But the, what that really does is people are confident if they keep walking, at least in a dense area, they're going to find a Starbucks. If they keep driving, they're going to find one. So they don't look for another place. So that's, but that they do, they do, that's different than what, what most people do. And you have to be easy to do business with. 
now more than ever. And I think that dynamic is going to increase over time. Yeah. It's, it's, rocket science. it's not rocket science. Then. That's what's fascinating. It's not some major curveball. Like this should be relatively intuitive, but ultimately the reason why there's so much opportunity in the world is because we live in a world in which things don't work the way that they should. So that's your angle. Just make things a little better. They don't work the way they should. And they, uh, they change and change is, uh, happening more rapidly these days, especially yep. as you said, COVID was just a big accelerator. It was just putting the foot on the gas to a lot of this kind of stuff. Now the challenge is it's uh change is hard and sometimes we don't like to change or we don't want to change. And so we can either, you know, metaphorically put our head in the sand or we can just try to grit it out or we can go, okay, here's what's happening. How do I, adapt. And I think one of the things I really admire about you is your uh, ability to see, see these changes and to look at it, you know, from a, a sharp business perspective. I mean, this is business. Um, you know, we don't, nobody likes COVID. Nobody likes what's happening with COVID. It's horrible. Uh, it's horrible. There's been so many negative impacts, but, but we can't change it. There's nothing we can do about it. So I think you've done a good job uh, from what I've seen of saying, okay, as bad as this is, I can't change that. So how do I take, and this is, I think this is true the way you've always kind of done things from talking to you is how do I take this challenge that I can't change and turn it into an opportunity? Yeah, absolutely. And the, the, to your point, there's lots of free money available now. Grant money, city of Savannah has grants, uh, PPP money, you know, their loans, the idle loans that are much easier to get than, than his, you know, business loans have historically been. So there is opportunity too, but that opportunity yeah. for existing businesses or for people that are starting or, or both. I don't know about a true startup. Technically squirrels is a startup because we're less than two years old, yeah. but, um, but existing businesses, it's, it's uh, there's, there's some easy money out there. And, and frankly, for, for us, it's been a boon in that corner taco is we had a record year last year. I haven't been there in two years. I think I told you that we have great people running it. We have good systems. Yeah, down in Jacksonville. Yeah, the we had a record year in 2019, and even though we're only at 50% capacity, we're up in 2020 over last year. So that money has all been accretive, that extra free money, and yeah. and uh, and not just free money, but but loan money that at a low interest rate, 30 years. Um, the and I say free money, not really free, but but it's it's uh, it's been accretive. It's been it's been helpful. We didn't lay anybody off, but squirrels, even though I'm ultimately somewhat disappointed in these results we're flat over last year we're doing the same revenue we were in 2019 we had been on a major upward trajectory like in february 2020 we were just crushing it and then march dropped drastically we had to go to take out delivery only but we're still doing in our worst week we're still doing 90 percent of what we were doing last year and a good week we're doing about 110 percent of what we're doing last year uh, so in the grand scheme of things that's pretty good that's that's tremendous yeah but a lot of it's we've made a lot of changes. We've we've uh, we've adapted our offerings. We've 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 really pushed takeout delivery. We also one of the best moves we made, which some people thought was almost idiotic from a purely financial standpoint, but it's it's been a, it's been a great thing. Overall, overarching point: our main goal throughout COVID has been to bank goodwill that we can deploy in the future. So as, as, as soon as COVID, and that's in some ways, that's the best you can hope for. It's, it's, it's hard to, it's hard for any restaurant now to really be killing it financially, but, but there are still opportunities that you can't quite measure yet. 
qualitative rather than quantitative brand building basically so and how do you really measure the how do you really measure on a balance sheet the value of coke versus rc cola i mean you really can't or versus pepsi but there is a difference the from a brand brand perspective the people try to measure brand you know value but you really can't measure it it's it's it's, it's in your gut in some ways but the so what we did which I think was the best thing we could have done is we donated 10% of all sales from both restaurants to Given Kitchen, which helps restaurant workers during times of crisis. Immediately started doing that. Not only was it good ethics, and good ethics is good business in my opinion, it, it boosted sales. People felt good spending money at, at the restaurants. We donated 10 grand in one month to Given Kitchen. There's how also- do you, How do you- uh, communicate that to your customers. Uh, we, we we pushed it on social media. The news picked it up. Um, so it was. It, we got a lot of it, um, Giving Kitchen itself really helped to plug us. That wasn't the goal, but it was a byproduct of doing the right thing. And I think excellence. The the goal to really have a good business, which is a brand, not a label. The goal has to be, in my view, the goal has to be excellence. And then money is a byproduct of that excellence. If money is your goal, it's not that hard. It, in my opinion, it's not that hard to make money. What the real trick is making money and having a good night's sleep, feeling proud of what you're doing. That's the trick. And that's my goal. And, and the, the, so by donating that money, not only at worst, it was revenue neutral at best. It was secretive, but I go up, I go to whole foods. I go to I go in town. I get stopped a lot by people, just random people that I've never seen before. I don't know how they know who I am, but they just say, thank you so much for what you've done. You know, thank you. I went to eat at a pretty well-known restaurant the other day. Someone I've never seen, like, thank you so much for what you did for us. And we gave anybody in the restaurant industry who, who was out of a job, we gave them free food at Squirrels. Uh, gave, our staff had free food. Um, so it, it, the, the goal was to bank goodwill. And that's it. So the, 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 brand value of squirrels to the best that I could measure it, which I think is more gut than, than anything, you know, on a spreadsheet or balance sheet, the brand of squirrels is actually stronger now than it was before. Uh, so that's been the goal is just to bank goodwill. And that's really something everybody could do in their own way. Well, I can tell you, I mean, we, we absolutely believe that, um, in our business, uh, hundred percent. And, that's the stuff you can't measure. It's not what, like, it's not a, a B school approach because it's immeasurable and it's, it's a little, um, it's nuanced, but you know, the, um, what you used to, I mean, I, I really, I think that's such an important thing to think about is, um, not focusing on the money. The, in other words, like, I think your approach, it's very myopic when you're, when you're bottom line focused, um, your approach is, you know, that banking of that goodwill, that goodwill is paid back with interest. It's a nonlinear payback and, right. uh, in a positive way. Um, it's a, it's a long view. You're, you're taking a long view, but if you're, if you're building a business, particularly in, in your space and hospitality, man, I think that's really important. Um, I'm glad you brought that, that up. The other thing I wanted to ask you about is um, one of the other things is we talked a little bit about ghost kitchens last time we talked um, because I asked you, you know, there's, there's, if these restaurants that are not doing as well and they're closing, um, I don't think that they're closing the way that it, 
or at the rate that a lot of uh, negative news has portrayed, but they are closing. I mean, we're seeing it. Um, we see them close. And um, I just keep thinking about all this space. You know, these landlords have to put something in there um, because they've got to pay their bill. So if all these restaurant spaces are closing, you know, what happens to them? Well, you know, it's fascinating to see the, the decline of mall space and how that's being utilized. Like Amazon buying property from Simon, Simon yep. and, and use it, use like just use it as that for distribution centers. And then, uh, Travis, what's, what's the guy, the guy who started Uber Eats. Oh, Kalanick. 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 Yeah. 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 So, so he, he apparently made a huge investment and bought distressed mall space all, all around the country. And he's, he's doing ghost retail in addition to ghost kitchens out of those spaces. So I and that's actually kind of dovetails with what you're talking about. Cause I think what you're going to see is let's just say, for example, a 5,000 square foot space that, that restaurant, a 5,000 square foot space goes out of business. I don't think someone's going to take that over. I, I don't think someone's going to take it over and do well. I think what's likely to happen is that 5,000 foot square foot space gets fractured into three, three restaurants or two restaurants mm. uh, could theoretically be owned by the same person. Like I'd rather than doing one squirrels, I'd rather do a squirrels and a corner taco in the same space. Um, now I might not have been as interested in that pre COVID, but uh, I, I think those spaces, I, I honestly think there's going to be a massive deflation of value in commercial real estate nationwide. I just don't see how to avoid that. Like what's who wants to open a, a restaurant in New York. That's $30,000 a month. If you, especially if you, if you're limited by law as to what your dining capacity is, or maybe you can't do it at all. So I, 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 there's going to have to be a massive evolution of the restaurant business. People are always going to want to go out. They might not want to go out as much. So I, I met with uh, uh, somebody, I've been a hard to go in the backyard. I met with them earlier today. He told me his business is flat this year compared to last year, which he thinks is a good thing. But he said a lot of people are improving their homes. They're making their homes more livable. They're hunkering down. Uh, Sundays, I think you and I have talked about this, but I think people are, have, have rediscovered dinner as a family on Sundays. Maybe yeah. they're getting takeout, but they're probably eating at more likely to eat it at home than before, rather than dining out. And I think people's habits have changed and will continue to change. And I think that's going to last at least a generation, if not forever. And it's it's uh, so. Well, the habits have changed, but what hasn't changed is is uh, okay. So now you're eating Sunday dinner at home, maybe instead of going out or maybe you didn't have Sunday dinner, but you, what hasn't changed is people don't, if you can provide something for them and yeah. you're easy to do business with. So if you can provide that meal and if they just, all they got to do is pick it up because people aren't going to hunker down and start cooking. They're going to be like, Man, I'm tired of this. like <laughs> somebody. Yeah, it's going to be takeout versus dining. And, and there's still restaurants that refuse to do takeout. Yeah. It blows my mind, but it's so large format meals. We did a, we don't do it now because it was hard to keep. It was a lot of labor relative to what we were charging. We didn't charge a lot specifically because it was in some ways a loss leader, but it was to bank goodwill and keep us out of mind. But we did a, a like a large format lasagna. So a killer organic tomato sauce, Bianca de Napoli, which makes great tomatoes, um, homemade lemon ricotta. So uh, we did this with Ezzo's uh, sausage, which is a just premium, uber premium sauce that we use at the restaurant. But we did, um, so it fed four people, it was like 25 bucks. And we would, every time we put it up, we'd sell it out. But it was, it was, uh, 
So I think people, so restaurants moving more towards doing some large format meals as opposed to single servings. Uh, I think that's, that's going to be, people are still going to spend money. They're just going to change how they, they, they do it. And, and they might even spend, what I do see is at least eventually them spending the same amount of money they spent before. Uh, but they're going to do it differently. And, and picnics, that's something we had squirrels. We bought some branded picnic blankets. Beautiful. We're near Forsyth Park, beautiful park. Uh, so we make it easy. You know, people could buy, let's just say, for example, a bottle of wine, uh, whatever else. And then with, if they spend more than 50 bucks, they get a free blanket, that kind of thing, picnic blanket. It's a cool picnic blanket that has leather straps. And you know, so things making it easy for people to do the things they want to do. I was at a restaurant in Savannah not too long ago. And something that fascinated me is there were people who had bought food in the restaurant and they had their, let's say they had a truck, they had the tailgate pulled down, they were eating in the parking lot. And there was something really just rustic and cool about that. I'd never seen that before. Not, in the lot of a parking, not in a lot of a restaurant. And yeah, that's cool. But, but the, we have, um, we have uh, beer garden style picnic tables literally in the meat, in the, like on the sidewalk in front of squirrels. And I've traveled a lot in Europe and there they have tons of little uh, park, you know what a parklet is? What is it? A parklet, a parklet. It's literally, it's literally like a patio in a parking space. And um, so we got that approved. I, 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 I can't say this is because of me, but I had emailed the mayor about, about parklets and, and they do, we were approved for parklet. Uh, and it, things that are raw, real, rustic, the things that we did in college that maybe we weren't supposed to do, or, you know, uh, I remember in high school, we used to go to this place called Betty Circle, you know, when 17 years old, we'd you know, drink some beers, wine, whatever, and then under a tree, and it's just, it was just primal and, and fun. And it's, and people still like doing that fish camps. Yeah. So it's, it's, um, so I, I really, I, 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 I don't have a, a bleak outlook on the restaurant industry as a whole. I have a bleak outlook on people doing the same things that they used to do and expecting them to work. So there's going to have to be major adaptations. I, the, the, I think there'll be a big growth in food halls. I think there'll be a big growth in, in, outdoor dining. I mean, I, people always like it, but then how do you adapt? There are ways you can make even a hot space like Savannah in July is miserable, but yeah. you can buy those outdoor Porta, Porta air conditioners that you can, and you can have a big, a big ass fan. You can make it so that it's not uncomfortable. And I think people will trade a little comfort now for the perception of safety. And ultimately I think one of the big failures of government at this point, like whatever your beliefs are, the, objectively COVID probably shouldn't be that big of a deal. If you actually look at the percent of people actually dying objectively and, and the data, you know, vis-a-vis -vis people, number of people dying car wrecks or cancer or whatever else, but the perception is that is, 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 is what it is. And that's not going away. So it really needs to be the biggest thing we're battling now is actually the public perception it's not the objective reality. And I think that subjective reality almost over, always overcomes the objective reality. And I think that's what we really need to address. The perception of safety doesn't mean there are specific things that go into that because there are, but that people are going to be scared of COVID for a long time, no matter what. And, and we have to address that and respond to it. And so that's why at Squirrels, we're voluntarily at reduced capacity because what we want more than anything else is for people to know that they can trust us. And, and so our standards greatly exceed the government standards. And, and it's, so that's, that's, uh, 
it's that that's really what we're addressing. Well, fear is a, a big motivator, and uh, people are not people are emotional, right? So they they make emotional decisions decisions, and they post rationalize. So when you talk about objectively, doesn't matter. Like what matters is what you said. It's how people feel. It's how what people believe. I think that um. Yeah, I mean, even if COVID goes away or whatever, we I mean, people are now kind of thinking, I mean, I got to believe people are going to wash their hands more. They're going to be more yeah. careful in public. They probably won't shake hands as much. They're just going to go, well, what about the next thing that we don't know about until we yeah. know about it? I totally agree. Whatever. And you're more aware of that stuff now. Um, so the um, uh, if you're a, a young, or not young, but you're a first-time entrepreneurial person who's thinking okay well maybe maybe now's my time uh ironic as that may be because maybe commercial real estate's cheaper maybe i can get access to funds a little bit better um is that a is that a wise way to look at it now or over the next year or so if you're thinking about starting something maybe now's a good time because you you can come in with fresh ideas you can come in maybe with cheap you know access to cheap capital cheap cheaper real estate possibly well, I don't think the access capital thing will be would be much easier now relative to before for someone completely starting up because they do want basically what on a lot of applications what they want to know is that your expenses are are greater now than they were it's that, that things aren't as good on some level whether it's your expenses whether it's your sales yeah. as they were pre COVID yeah. so um, the the but where there is opportunity is that I think consumers will accept maybe less than they would have before in terms of if they, they don't building a restaurant is very expensive. It's just, I mean, it's, it's, it's the average restaurant bill. I, I saw the last time I saw, I've actually seen a hard statistic. It was in probably 2007. And at that point it was, I believe it was 350,000 just for leasehold improvements nationwide. So obviously you know, less in Topeka, more in New York. But now I honestly think it probably abuts a million bucks. I mean, it's just, it is expensive to, and nobody, banks will not loan. I have over an 800 credit score. I could not get a reasonable loan for squirrels, even though I have a strong track record too. You're considered a startup if you're, if you're under two years old. Really, it's more like three years. You need two years of tax returns. But unless you open January 1st, you, you know, like we open July. So, so, um, it's it's very hard to get financing, but I think the difference is if I were going to start now. So we started as a food truck in 2011, one of the first food trucks in the South. If I were going to start now, I would do a ghost kitchen or what I would call a modified ghost kitchen uh, or enhanced ghost kitchen. That one of the best models for me right now, and something I'm I'm actively looking for, is the idea of a a place that does mostly delivery and takeout. And by the way. When people say, oh, Uber Eats is expensive, you know, DoorDash is expensive. Yes, they're expensive, but I'd rather have 70% of something and 100% of nothing. And, and plus, I'm banking on the fact that someone like Amazon is going to come to the marketplace at some point, reduce those prices probably by a lot. And, and, oh, yeah. and, and, but we'll still have good search engine optimization because we've, the, the, we've been in the system for a while. So we'll come up near the top at the, at, you know, in the search results. But it's, I want to ask you about that though, yeah. because that's an important topic. These uh, these because there's a lot of different ways to look at that. Um, so you're right, it's seventy percent of something. Um, 
do, is it just not cost effective at all for y'all to do it? No, we do it, and I think it is. But here's why: we you have to have a low food cost, and you have to have a low packaging cost. Like we do, so our food cost target uh, at Corner Talk, both restaurants, is under twenty six percent of food sales, not of not of total sales. And we, we do that by essentially protein arbitrage. You know, I've talked about it before, but essentially what we do is we find, we find obscure cuts that aren't super popular and we enhance them. For example, we buy tenderloin brochette pieces. And all that means is if, I, if a fine dining restaurant buys an eight ounce filet pre-cut, obviously that doesn't come from a perfect eight ounce piece. They trim the sides. We buy those side pieces and we pay five bucks a pound versus 18 or 20 bucks a pound. And the price is very stable. We buy stuff other people can't use. I call it protein arbitrage. I mean, no one else, I say that and people's eyes glaze over, but everybody engages in arbitrage, whether they realize or not, if they go to a duty free shop in Mexico and buy liquor, you know, Jim beam for whatever, 20 bucks versus 30, that that's arbitrage in a way. Yeah, sure. um, yeah. So, um, so that's, so we have a low food cost. So even I, I, on our PL, our PL, we don't use the default on QuickBooks. Our PL is customized by me over many years the way I like it. So we list our commission and fees that we pay, Uber Eats, et cetera, under our food cost. So I test our food cost two different ways with those fees and without. So with the fees, it's still under 30%. Most restaurants shoot for about 33%. So it's still, that tells me it's still profitable. Plus it gets us out to more people. Um, I'm surprised how big our takeout and online ordering is now as a percentage of sales. I thought everybody would just do Uber Eats and deliver, but we still do a pretty good amount of, people know, a lot of consumers, they, they want their favorite restaurants to survive. So we have a lot of people ordering, calling in to get takeout rather than doing Uber Eats. And I think a lot of it's because they just, they, they want, they know we get the extra money. But I, I think it, I, I think you've gotta be, I think going forward, you've gotta, you've gotta be, in that that's got to be part of your overall infrastructure what well, is there, is there an opportunity for um local delivery services and and the reason i ask that question is i get uber eats and lyft and all these ones at scale but the problem with them is like seven or eight years ago uber really vetted their drivers yeah. Now yeah. you show up and, you know, yeah. like you can drive. And then the pro I, I'm curious of your perspective on this. I, I, I know how I think I would think about it, but I don't know. My hunch is my intuition is I'd be really concerned about the, the disconnect and maybe the consumer recognizes it, but between the service that yeah. Yeah. my team would provide. And then I hand this food to some Uber driver who knows. And then they show up, and the, and I had this happen cause we ordered some food and I was like, that sucked. Like that was a bad experience. I just have that driver. And I knew enough about it to not really blame the brand. But then I was like, yeah, but you're using them. Like that still reflects on you. Yeah. It's well, a weird thing. It is, but that bringing up an interesting point, my role as the owner, one of my main roles is to make it easy to do the right thing, hard to do the wrong thing. If the wrong thing keeps happening, then that's my fault. Yeah. So, so to your point, that's why we had the oil. We get, we get reviews sometimes that you know, they got their delivery through Uber Eats and the food was cold. Like it might take 30 minutes from the time that someone, the food's picked up at a restaurant for the customer to get, it might be 45 minutes after we actually made it. Maybe the food, the, maybe the food was ready at eight 15. The driver doesn't pick it up till late 30, 8 45. Like that's, but we've got to make it so that our food is still good when it's cold. And 
I always respond to reviews and I, I will correct it. Like we do the best we can, but also we put, we did have an issue, not just with Uber Eats, but wherein we would send food out and then we checked on the receipt as, as and then the, the, it was basically never made its way to the customer. Like they would say, oh, a pizza was missing. How, if you order a pizza and a salad, how is your, you don't, we're not gonna just give them the salad. We, we, we gave them the, we checked it off on the receipt. So something, and that was a big issue. What we do now is we put tamper-proof stickers on the boxes of food and then on the bag. Um, and it, and the, that's, that's, that's worked. And so I have to figure out ways to make it as bulletproof as possible. And, and you, I don't think anyone wants to order I don't know, a $35 salmon through Uber Eats. So you don't, maybe you don't offer that through Uber Eats. You offer things that, that still are, that are still good at room temperature. Tacos are still good at room temperature yeah. and quesadillas are still good. It doesn't have to be piping hot. And, and so we do the best we can, but we can't control all the steps, but we have to make it as bulletproof as we can so that any, if those steps, the, the steps after that's picked up, don't go the way they hope they do. It's still good. And I don't think people expect it to be a hundred percent the same through delivery and takeout that it would be in the restaurant. I think most people are, are reasonable and under, understand that. But I, I, but I, I, just, I hope there's like Savannah eats and Charlotte eats and Denver eats and places like there I, is. I think there, there are. Okay. Yeah. Cause it just seems like an opportunity to come to you and go, look, all I do is take care of Savannah. You know, like our business is only Savannah and we take our, our differentiator is our uh, experience we provide to your customer, not only in terms of efficiency, but just the way we speak to them, the way yeah. we treat them, the way we <laughs> represent your brand indirectly uh, when we show up at their house. Yeah, yeah. Well, there's Savannah Takeout, and that's our preference. But there's certain things you can't do with Savannah Takeout. For example, when when the little click buttons you have on like Instagram and Yelp. They only work for, I think, I think um, Yelp is tied in. I can't remember if it's Grubhub or Uber Eats, but you can only use, so you're not, the, the, the point is we would love to only use cinnamon and takeout. The reality is you know, once people get into a specific ecosystem, whether it's Grubhub, whether it's Uber Eats, they stay in it. So they won't find us if we're not. And, and, and I, I wish that weren't the case, but it is. And, and I said, the key is you've got to be, you've got to be lean as a rest, as a restaurant, your food cost, the days of, a restaurateur just saying they want to have tenderloin, beef tenderloin on the menu and paying, you know, let's just say 10 bucks proportion plus a wraparound cost for the sauces, let's say two bucks, let's say 12 bucks. And the old, in the old days, you just multiply that by three and you charge 36 bucks and that's it. Those days, in my opinion, except at the very top, are gone. You have to be creative. So instead of offering tenderloin, you offer terrace major skirt steak. Some terrace major is the lap muscle. It's the second most tender, but it's a fraction of the cost. You can market it as bistro filet. Or you braise things. By braising, you can, you can take an inexpensive cut and make it very, very flavorful. That's not something someone would do at home. Most of the cooking is done in advance, so the service time is, the time to actually put on the plate is, is short. So um, you have to be creative and you have to be savvier. It's, you have to be savvier than, than before and, and than people did, had, to, had to be before. And it's, it's uh, you have to figure it out. You can't just take what's given to you and say, oh, this is what it is. Let's, you know, let's, you have to take lemons and term and figure out how to turn and eliminate. And that's not really that hard. And most people aren't trying to do it, which is why it's not that hard to do because no one's trying to do it. And we do at squirrels and at corner taco, we only use boneless skinless chicken thighs. 
they are the most, if you ask 10 people to taste, let's just say, for example, General Tso's chicken, if you ask them, do they want breast, chicken breast, or do they want chicken thigh, they will tell you they want chicken breast. But if you had them all try one with breast and one with thigh, I bet you at least nine, if not 10, would choose the thigh. So there's a disconnect between what people say they want and what they actually buy or prefer in the end. Nobody in 19, whatever, 98 would have said they needed an iPod, but now people probably couldn't live without, or at least their iPhone. You know, so it's, it's um, so really parsing through what people say. They, we get so many requests for food, like, oh, do you have gluten-free pizza? But they don't, it doesn't sell. We actually, in the restaurant, we only have like one person a month try to order it, yet we probably get 10 requests a month via, you know, private message through Instagram, et cetera, et cetera. So there's a difference, there's a bit, you can't, model yourself after what people say they want. You've got to model it after what people buy. And that data, data is often very divergent from what they say they want or what they say they don't want. That's why I don't believe in focus groups. I think oh, people don't, no, I don't either. People don't know what they want. Nobody. Yeah. You're right about, I mean, like Steve jobs was ahead of the curve. He, you know, nobody would have yeah. said that. Yeah. And now you, well, most people, most people can't live without their iPhone. Check this out, man. You told me about it. <laughs> That's analog. <laughs> It's about a week or two old. I like it though, but uh, yeah, you have to be a weirdo like me to even think about that because it's just it's, it's a lot of work. Um, you wouldn't like it if you didn't have the computer. No, no, I wouldn't. I actually have an iPad for all my apps now, but it stays in one place so it doesn't travel with me. Right. I'm actually getting all my texts over to that too, like uh, except for family, customers, and um, the schedule fly crew. I have everything else going to my iCloud address, so they'd yep. all go there. Yeah. So my phone is just like literally a phone now, which right, is right. It's like that's what it should be, and uh, and it gets some text. But anyway, to your point, I want to I want to you you know here's the thing. It's the same thing. Like I was talking to some friends the other day, and we were talking about how if you didn't use the last few months with a significant amount more time for most people, not everybody, but for a lot of people, you had more time at home, you had more time on your hands, you weren't going on. If you didn't use that to get into shape, but you say, I really want to get into shape, you're never going to get into shape. Like this yeah. was the perfect opportunity. Yeah, yeah. So in other words, to your point about making changes, people won't do it because it's hard and it's change is just, you know, we, we like to say, here's what the gluten free, I, I want this or I need to start eating this. But at the end of the day, most people won't make the effort to change because it is hard. At least it's hard initially. And then what you do, same thing with that flip phone, like, little you know curve to get over and now i'm like home free but people have a hard time changing and if you're able to do that you have a significant advantage right now because most people won't it's just it's tough to do Here, here's a universal truth people's biggest obstacle is not something external it's themselves 100 percent agree with and, that. and it's it's uh it's and, and i i deal with that I, the, yeah. I get my own way. I don't really have other things get in my way. I get my own way. And I, and I recognize that. And I, I try to circumvent it as much as is reasonable, but that's a, a human trait. I'm fascinated. You, so thank you for the book, Anti-Fragile. I actually, oh, yeah. I've been listening to the audio book just because it works better with my lifestyle. And I've listened, listened to probably about a third of it, but it's fascinating how many truisms there are in there. Like the fact that, you know, in just, you look to nature, fire thrives through basically chaos, through wind. You, you wouldn't have, you wouldn't have a big flame without the wind and it's nature thrives with chaos and, and how can humans think in that same way? Like it's chaos is a, is a good thing, the disruption. And 
thinking about thinking about how you can harness chaos. And I, 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 I think there's almost always a way to turn lemon into lemonades. You just gotta, you gotta flip the mindset around instead of saying, woe is me. You gotta be glass half full, not glass half glass half. Well, empty. that's the difference between being fragile and anti-fragile. That book starts out with a quote and maybe on the very first page where he says something to the fact, I may, I won't get it right, but you know, the, uh, uh, wind extinguishes the candle and stokes the fire. You want to be the fire seeking the wind. Like, yeah, exactly. The good metaphor. Uh, it is. The chaos is, it's just like going to the gym. Like I'm going to go work out later and I, it's going to hurt and it's going to, I'm going to be sore, but then I'll benefit from that. But paying that price, that short price, that short acute price you have to pay is hard uh, unless you start to realize on the other side of that, the benefits. And then once you start doing it, you, you never look back, right? Like if you get in shape or you change your business and you start seeing, you're like, ah, I get it now, but it's hard to, uh, you know, it's hard to have that, that mentality and that mindset, but it's um, for folks like you challenging times like this, which are a very, in the scheme of things, a short, very acute stressor. You, you can use that. To, to gain, you know, the obstacle book, there's that book, the obstacle is the way. Um, that's another great one um, by Ryan uh, Holiday. And uh, he's written a few books on like, stoic thought. Uh, the obstacle was the way is awesome. And um, see you writing that down, you grab that thing, but that's it. Like it's, it says it right there in the title. You know, the obstacle is the way. It's not the thing you want to avoid. It's the thing you want to go around or over. Um, yeah, you can't find home until you've left it. Like the concept of home doesn't really exist. People stay in the same home that you've lived in your whole life. You've got to gain perspective by, by losing it essentially. Yeah. Uh, and when you go to the gym, you actually tear muscle. It's violent. And that, that the reparation process is what makes you, your metabolism stronger. What's makes what makes you burn fat and, and grow more muscle, grow stronger in the end. You said you were going to go before we started doing this, you were going to go skateboarding this morning, but you yeah. Had to, uh, yeah. I have a longboard. And I, I it's funny cause I, it's with COVID. I used to, I have a little, like a gym in my garage. It's just a Bowflex. Yeah. Uh, and I'm a member of a local gym, but I haven't gone since COVID. They were closed for a long time. I, that's just not somewhere I really want to be now. Yeah. Uh, but, but working out in my gym when I work from home is just not like, I like the sense of communion you get from being around other people. I do tend to want to be on the periphery. Like I like just support that support side park is always bustling. So I ride my skateboard around the perimeter and it's, so I feel like I'm, I've gotten out of the house, but I'm not, you know, yeah. In a gym with, you know, 300 other people. So that's just something I enjoy. I'm trying, I'm still, you know, that, this is, this is interesting too, because so much has changed because of the pandemic and I'm still finding my way. Like, for example, I used to play soccer, uh, on Wednesdays with a, with a group of people, but they stopped playing. You weren't allowed to gather and put more than six yeah. people. So they stopped playing. And now the times have changed and doesn't really work with my schedule. I'm with my son a lot. Um, so I'm trying to find something I can do that doesn't require me to organize a lot of people, but it's something still fun. And I can tell you too, some of the things I used to like doing, like I've lived all over the world, even when I was living in Buenos Aires and Rio, I never missed my gym routine. I would go twice a week. I never yeah. missed it, but now it's just not fun for me anymore, especially with the COVID thing. And yeah. and um and I've only been in Savannah about three years, so I'm still figuring out you know the lay of the land, so to speak. But um, but even yoga class, I used to do yoga regularly, um, and it's that's not something I really want to do now. Um, plus, I don't think it'd be busy. I don't really want to go to yoga class if there's one person there. Yeah. It's, it's um. Nor do I want to go to place do yoga class if there are 50 people in there. So it's it's um just finding different things that work. You know in a 
pandemic and soon to be post pandemic world. But I, I think, I think a lot's going to be different. I, I don't desire to go to New York city now. Um, and I, I just went to Austin, uh, Texas, Phoenix, Arizona. I just went to Atlanta. There's still so many places that are closed and it's, I don't want to go to a famous restaurant and just get takeout. Like I want to, I want to know what makes, I want to understand the vibe and know what makes it, you know, what it is. And, and, um, I travel a lot to try different restaurants to see that it's not just the food, it's the decor, it's the vibe, it serves everything. So it's, it's, um, thinking about where things are headed. That's what's fascinating to me. And I, I, I do think at the end of this, I don't think things are going to go back to the way they were. I, it doesn't mean there's going to be some normalcy, but I think it's going to be a different, a, a, just a different type of normalcy. I think, like I said, that people will still be going out to eat, but they might be, they might not be dining in or they might be sitting outside, not dining, not sitting inside. I don't see the future of 5,000 square foot restaurants with 250 seats being bright. I just, I just don't. Yeah. Um, I would love to do, like I said, sort of a hands goes kitchen. I'd love to have, a restaurant that focused primarily on delivery uh, with some sort of takeout component, let's just say like six, eight seats. Uh, it's takeout and dining component. Uh, I, we tested, when Burrito for Our first opened, we tested it as delivery, just a virtual kitchen. It's a 1965 Airstream parked behind the restaurant. And when we first started, it wasn't very busy. When we would go out to other locations, it was very busy. But I think in second tier markets like Savannah or smaller markets, there's a, people aren't yet comfortable with the idea of a completely virtual kitchen. In New York, they don't care, they're used to it. So I think being able to see it, there's value in that. It's more psychological probably than anything else. So if people could come in and try takeout, then they might then subsequently order virtually. But I think having some sort of a bricks and mortar, but small would probably be the ideal model now. Um, obviously leveraging your square footage, but having some sort of rustic, uh, there's a place in DC uh, called Rockland's Barbecue, and they had a they did a ton of takeout. Uh, they didn't do delivery at the time. I don't know if they do now, but they just had they literally had like six or eight seats, but it was extremely rustic. Rustic. They had like exposed I don't know cedar shingles or something on the inside. It was just rustic, and they had a, a screen door that slammed behind you when you came in, and and something like that was is what I would be thinking about now. And that that's something that could actually thrive now that I'm not sure would have thrived a year ago. So, and that would be a much lower startup cost than a traditional bricks and mortar restaurant. You mentioned the word rustic two, if not three times. Why is that important right now? Do you think? I, I just more than anything else, especially now, I think put, this really started 2008. I think people crave realness and a sense of somewhereness, raw, but not the frilly, you know, my pleasure, my pleasure, hand behind the back. And, and I think, so I think that started in 2008 um, and you know, with the, with the crash then. And I, and I think, I think COVID's accelerated that. I think people are sick of uh, 2008. People were sick of living a lie. Everybody was over leveraged. Um, and now it's just, People don't, I don't think people want to sit down for a three hour tasting menu and we're literally held captive and you have to hear the server describe the chef's grandmother's shed and how this is where she made this and that and the molasses and it's just annoying. And I, I think I people, I think people want myself included want realness. I want a real experience. I want something. Authenticity. Authenticity. Yeah. And I think, I think the internet too, it's really smoked that people can smoke out a lie and that's 
most businesses are labels. They're not brands. A brand has a belief system. It's, it doesn't have to be, it shouldn't be for all people. What you say no to is as important as what you say yes to. It right. should be actually exclusive. It should be, uh, we would much rather at both restaurants, we have a menu post on the wall. And the, one of the reasons that Squirrels is named Squirrels is so people don't have expectations. If you come to Squirrels and think it's gonna be a traditional pizzeria, then it's on you, not on us. We want people to double opt in. It, it drives me nuts when I buy some product online and they require you to put your email address in ostensibly so they can send you a confirmation of your order and all of a sudden you're signed up for some marketing list. Wow. I believe in double opting in. I, I, want, I want people before they come into to the restaurants to know, to have, a, to have a better idea, to know what they're not gonna get. You right. can't get Budweiser at another restaurant. You can't get fountain drinks. We have Mexican Coke. We have you know, premium, no, no high fructose corn syrup, nothing hydrogenated. Uh, we make everything. We make our own sriracha sauce at Corner Taco. We make our own grenadine. We, yeah. we, we make our own crema. We don't have sour cream. And, and so we want, we want a small group. But what we found is, while it's not for everybody, the people that it is for are – much more loyal to us. It's like the first time you hear a band that you feel really gets you. Like for me, maybe my morning jacket, you know, you hear me like, God, they, ah, MMJ. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. But a band like that, it's not, you know, the, it's not the all things to all people. And it's got, so you, what That's you say, what you say no to is as important as what you say yes to. I think a lot of restaurateurs in particular, but maybe all business owners try to be all things to all people. They want to have all the greatest hits, burgers, sushi, pizza. And that's confusing. If you try to be, everything to everyone in the end in the end you're nothing to no one so building a brand is much different than building a label and it's it it when corner taco first opened there were people in jacksonville who didn't get us we had we had very strong core following but there were plenty of people who are like you know what the fuck is this fresh corn tortilla uh, we don't have ground beef tacos we don't have you know it's it's all we make our own sweet chili sweet chili and lemon sauce, which is basically like a homemade sweet Thai chili. Um, uh, really, it's a piquillo pepper gastrique if you want to get technical, but it's, it's, we make our own queso. It's like a fondue, a real fondue with white cheddar and brie. We don't use a candy, easy milk cheese. Mm. So there, and when we first opened, there were people like, oh, wait, wait, what's, but what's happened is the people who tried us and like, this is so different, we love it. Through word of mouth, they've told 10 other people about us. And now we have such a strong, brand it's not a label and and we don't want some we would rather someone look at what we offer we have a big poster on the front that says you know basically talks about what we're about and says that we're nothing like any other place we'd much rather someone look at that look at the menu turn around and leave than come and spend their money and be disappointed whereas a lot of times people want everybody to spend their money they're thinking about that day but you got to play the long game you got to think about two years from now three years from now and that has totally panned out for us at corner taco and it is panning out up for us now at squirrels we're starting to get pizza tourism we get people we had a couple come they heard about us in charleston um a couple weeks ago and they were driving somewhere else they stopped in savannah just to eat at squirrels we and that's happening more and more and i think that's going to especially as close as we are to 95 i think that's going to be a big thing for us a, a big driver of revenue in the future but a lot of it's because of what we said no to it's it, we don't have jim beam we don't have you know we everything we do is is, is everything we have is something i would eat on my, I'm not gonna, I don't, I don't really drink much liquor, but if I do, I'm drinking something that I really like. I'm not gonna drink something that makes me, like Jim Beam, I, even the smell makes, no offense people drink it, but it's just, it's, it's, I don't like Budweiser. 
I don't, and, and if, if I'm not proud of it, we're not going to serve it. And we don't have, we do chicken wings at squirrels with a pecan fired, but it's a, it's basically a Korean Buffalo sauce. We don't serve celery sticks with it. We don't serve blue cheese. They're really good. We have people who say they're the best wings in town. We, when we first opened in particular, we had, we had some people who were just like literally pissed that we didn't have blue cheese. And we don't, that's not what we, what we do. If you want that, fine, go, you know, but There's go other places that have it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And we had one guy basically demand that our managing partner go to the store and get it. He was like, that's not what we do. You know, please go somewhere else. And some people are shocked by that. They, they think, you know, they think of Thurn, the Fern bars of the eighties and nineties that said yes to everything. We don't say yes to everything. The customer, this is an interesting dynamic that can only exist in today's society. The customer is not always right. In my view, the customer always has a point of view, but they're not always right. And I will tell them, I agree. I will tell them not to come back. I don't, I, we're not, if someone is rude to my staff, they're, they're not, they can't come back. I don't, I hope they tell all their friends not to come because we don't want, we don't want that kind of customer. That's um, driven so, out of fear. All those things like, I, I'm kind of a believer that I've come to believe that every decision we make ultimately, like if you peel back the layers of the onion enough, it, it either comes from a place of love or fear. Yeah, that's true. We're always right. All that we got to get, that's just a place of, I'm, I'm scared that if I don't, then they're going to say something on and then, and then all the, and all these bad stuff's going to happen. That's just coming from fear. You, um, you touched on a really important point too, Chris, which I think that people, even if they, they may, they may go, okay, well, they don't have gluten-free or whatever. That's not for me. I got to have gluten-free or they don't uh, have Budweiser. But boy, I tell you, if you, if you tell people who you are and what you're about, you draw a line, you force them to decide whether that's yeah. for them or not. At minimum, they, most people um, respect you. You know, like we have that, like we'll have people that are like, look, y'all don't have, I need this with my, whatever. Like you don't have clocking, but you know, but we won't do that because that's not what we do. And it's amazing how many people are like, man, I respect that. Like that's people. like, in other words, you can almost tell they're like, I wish I were in a business that had a, that made a point of, you know, that had a point of view as well. I right. hear that a lot. Like talking to people, they're kind of like, man, good for you, which is, you know, I think that's cool. Yeah. You don't, I don't care if you like me or not. Yeah. Yeah, I I who I are. yeah, that's right. That's right. And I'm not going to change it for you. I'm not going to pretend. So the, the what, a dynamic that that happens a lot in fine dining restaurants is that the server is like, oh sure, yes sir, yes ma'am, my pleasure, my pleasure. Then they go to the back of the kitchen and they're like, that person's a jerk. You know that what, I don't want that. Like it's, I want authenticity more than anything. Why would ever. you want that as a consumer? Like why would you want everybody yeah. catering to you and not letting you know you're a total jackass? Like I mean, you'd rather just probably is just out of <laughs> like, but, but I think more than anything else, authenticity has to be the hallmark of businesses, and it's it's uh it's it's easy to find someone who does the same you know something similar but it's it's always it, you can always find a lower cost producer of something but you can't you can't always find someone who has the same overall value and value is price is what you pay value is what you get and that's value is so much more nuanced than just price i got another one for you have you read the book called different by Young Me Moon, a marketing professor at Harvard. No, no, really. It's a lot of what you were talking about. It made me think about that book. It's uh, she talks about having the, you know, being 
bold enough to be different. So she, one of the examples that really stuck, I mean, I read this thing like 10 years ago, uh, but the example that really stuck was she talked about in the, like the auto industry, how, you know, you take a, a Volvo owner and a Volkswagen owner and the Volkswagen owner is like, Oh, I like my Volkswagen, but the Volvo has this and this. And so the focus groups go, Oh, well we should. And then the Vol the Volkswagen folks go, oh, the Volvos have this and the focus group. And next thing you know, the Volvo and the Volkswagen are like the same thing. Like there's nothing different. And then mini Cooper comes out and they're like, screw all that. Like look at our car. And like, what happens is you have to decide, like I wouldn't buy a mini Cooper. It's not for me, but I got to tell you, I respect them for what they like, yeah. you know, but the people that do loyal as hell and that's where you get that um you know we talk about some of the stuff that's long and not measurable but boy if you really want to create word of mouth that's where you do that because you're you're drawing a line in the sand and you're forcing people to decide so the people that jump over that line that are on your side are like i love this and then they go tell other people because they're really vested they've got some skin in the game in in what you're doing so they're more apt to go they're different and here's why you ought to check it out and um like they become loyal fans not just customers which is what we really want which is your point brand versus label yeah yeah the goal has to be some at least especially you know the early adopters, the goal has to be to develop cult followers it, it, it just it has to be because then they'll evangelize you yeah and and what's interesting too is that means something different today than it used to in that even the decor of a restaurant now has to be Instagrammable. That wasn't a dynamic 10, 10 years ago. Like it has to be, the colors have to, the, the, the lighting has to be such so that photos look good. And that's something when I opened her restaurant 25 years ago, that's not, she never even thought of that. And, and it's, it's uh, so change brings opportunity and, and it's, it's important now more than ever to embrace change and, and, and dance with it as opposed to try to wish it hadn't happened. Dance with change, man. I like it. We'll wrap it up on that. I just looked at my clock here. It looks like I've taken a little over an hour of your time, man. So I really, really appreciate it. Yeah, man. I enjoy it as always. Anytime. All right, man. Good stuff, Chris. We'll talk again soon. Have a great day. All right. See ya. Thanks, bro.